So, <clears throat> excuse me, last week uh, we talked about Jesus calling Matthew, Matthew the tax collector, or the, the term that I like to use, indigenous tax farmer. It's a mouthful, but it speaks volumes. The tax collectors were hated not just because they took people's money, but because they were acting as agents of the occupation force. Uh, or in Matthew's case, probably under the jurisdiction of Herod, a puppet king, and then the money gets funneled over to Rome. As you can imagine, that did not ingratiate tax collectors to the people. Um, and uh, Jesus, as a uh, teacher, as a rabbi, of course, is expected to have disciples. And in the case of Matthew, he chooses the wrong guy. Or so we would think. Now, that calling of Matthew and Jesus then subsequently having a party with Matthew and his buddies, so you can imagine that this did not attract the upper crust of society or the respectable types, that is echoing in our heads. And the reading, the gospel reading for today when Jesus is talking about the harvest being plentiful, but laborers are few, and then he effectively ordains his disciples. Um, that, that's happening in close proximity to, to calling Matthew. It's not in the same scene. It's like right after that, and I don't think a lot of time has passed. And so we have that moment echoing in our heads. Or at least we should. Now, what I am about to do is I'm going to take a really big detour. And it's going to sound like Eric did not take his ADHD medication this morning and he's just going to go off and talk about things. Just give me time. <laughs> uh, the first, uh, but the first observation that I want to make is that the people we are surrounded with tend to tell a story. The friendships that you have tend to tell a story. You get a bunch of old buddies together, and there will be stories. There will be stories over how you met and how you bonded. Like I've got friends that I've met and bonded over video games and, and other really nerdy things. So when, you, when we hang out... We speak it just a, just a different language because we're different. Um, I I uh, the the people that I interact with when I'm at the gym and doing jujitsu also super nerdy. Spoiler alert: jujitsu is a very nerdy sport because it's very technical, and so we we talk about that and the way that we interact with each other tells a story. You could say the same about your family. That when you are spending time with your family, there are a ton of different stories swirling around together in that moment. Now, today's Father's Day. Your relationship with your father is going to tell a story, or more likely, a whole bunch of stories. Um, it doesn't have to be a good story. And, and I, I'm willing to bet probably everybody here has stories that are hard related to their father. But there are stories nonetheless. And those stories are actually going to shape 
who you are and how you see the world. I, for my part, I'm very fortunate. I love my father. I'm fairly certain he loves me. And <laughs> that was a joke, but whatever. Um, and there are all kinds of interesting stories that float around. Uh, my, I like to tell the story. My dad started as the uh, night shift trash man on the loading docks of a Coca-Cola foods plant. He retired several years ago as a vice president of Coca-Cola. I was like the only guy on the floor that didn't have an MBA. There's a whole bunch of stories there. So I would begin by asking... When you are with the people that you are normally with, what just what kind of stories are floating around there? Stories about the stories about the way that people interacted and all that good stuff. Now, for the detour, uh, <clears throat> when Jesus was around twelve years old, maybe a little bit after that, there was uh, yet another wave of taxation implemented by, uh, by Rome, by the Roman Empire. And there was a group of people led by a guy named Judas of Galilee, or Judas Gamala, and a guy named Sadok, who was a member of the Pharisee party, who got together and decided that they were sick of this. And they were, they were tired of the taxation, and they were tired of the symbolism behind that taxation. Because that's a way that Rome, uh, Rome dominated their conquered peoples. And so they started shouting different creeds like, taxation is tantamount to slavery, God's people will be slaves no longer. So think Exodus and Moses and all that. And so we will be free. Uh, if that sounds vaguely like no taxation without representation, it's because nothing is new under the sun. So they get together, they start, well, they end up starting a revolution. And because I'm willing to bet not too many of you have heard about it, you can guess that this revolution was not successful. In fact, it was brutally put down uh, by the Romans themselves. Uh, they crucified 2,000 men in response. This happened during Jesus' formative years. Um, Galilee was a small area. It's at least somewhat reasonable to assume that Jesus knew but people who lost their lives there. Actually, I have a pet theory. I can't prove it. Um, there's very little I can say to like fully defend it. I think, that, I think that's actually when Joseph dies. Um, and the only reason why I say that is that Jesus uh, is very aware during his career what happens when you fight violence with violence. So at the very least, I think there's some influence there. But again, I can't prove that. Um, what ultimately was birthed out of this revolution that failed was a group of radicals called the Kanaim. And the Kanaim, even though this revolution was put down, actually endured. Judas Gamala's sons took up his mantle. They kind of went underground for a while, but they persisted. 
And they would pop up and cause problems. Eventually, uh, there will be an even more radical group uh, that become essentially terrorists. I mean, the Kana'im function like terrorists. Um, This other group called the Sicarii were absolutely terrorists. There's some thought that Judas Iscariot had been involved in that. Um, And and one of the things that the the Kana'im did was target collaborators. So, Roman officials, or even better, Jewish people who had sold themselves out to Roman authority for their own gain. Those were prime targets for these kind of eem, these freedom fighters slash terrorists, depending on who you ask. Some of them became bandits, always looking for uh, an easy score or a score that would send a political message. So think Robin Hood, targeting wealthy nobles to make a point. So these kind of eem endured. Uh, A lot of times they were underground. They would bubble up occasionally, and eventually they bubbled up and caused the first Jewish-Roman war. We're not going to talk about that part. Among... Jesus' disciples, we know that there was at least one target who was very well aware of the existence of these Kanaim. And Phil, would you mind putting up the, the list of, of disciples here? Uh, just to show that Scripture is, is, is you, you cannot exhaust Scripture. You can derive so many cool things even from a list of names. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. Matthew has recently become a disciple of this Galilean rabbi. And he has likely spent a good chunk of his professional adult life with a big old target on his back. Knowing that folks like the Kana'im, these terrorists slash freedom fighters, depending on who you ask, would have been watching for him. Now, Kana'im is Aramaic. If you translate Kanaim into more or less English, and it's often translated this way, you get the word zealot. Alpheus, Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot. Think that was awkward around the dinner table? Jesus, in his hand-picked group, has got the target on his back And the guy who is targeting him. Awkward. And I have to think that Jesus did this on purpose. I don't think Jesus did anything unintentionally, for that matter. Now, like I said, the people that you surround yourself with tell a story. And if you have the terrorist slash freedom fighter, depending on who you ask, and the target sitting across the table from each other, and this Iscariot guy who 
by the name, we don't have time to go into it, but by his name, Iscariot suggests that maybe he was like the even more radical types whom Jesus knows is at some point going to stab him in the back. What kind of story is Jesus telling by the people that he has now surrounded himself with? Well, Jesus has been going around announcing, announcing the kingdom of God, or as Matthew likes to say, the kingdom of heaven. It's the same thing. And one of the, the wild things about this, and, and we saw this last week with uh, Matthew and his friends and, and the religious elite getting kind of upset with him because he invited the wrong sorts of people, is that the kingdom of God is for those who had long been excluded from the kingdom. And it's not like Jesus is just trying to, to pat himself on the back and say, see, I, I'm, I'm just trying to love the unlovable. I think what he's actually demonstrating and announcing is that there's a new reality, like a, a new economy. And it involves not just the wrong sorts of people, but actually if everybody has a place at the table of Jesus then that, by definition, is going to mean you and I will be sitting next to or across from the people we don't want to be anywhere near. That, I find to be deeply uncomfortable. Or imagine it like this. You've been invited to dinner. You sit down. And there are 10 people, and in short order, you discover five of them are Republicans and five of them are Democrats. That's a pretty, I mean, you would turn to the host and say, what are you doing, man? So my question for us is how do we sit with those that we really just don't want to sit with? The people that we disagree with. How do we, or what happens when we find ourselves near and around those who represent something that has hurt us deeply? Or next to somebody who has hurt us deeply? What do we do when we sit around people who are wrong? How do we manage ourselves in that situation? Now, just as a kind of like a pastoral sidebar, um, there are some people in our lives that the most loving thing we can do for them and for us is to no longer associate with them. It's not about holding a grudge. It's not about withholding forgiveness. And in fact, please work to forgive that person. But some people become so toxic that you just have to step away. At that point, that's just called boundaries. And I'm not talking about those. But otherwise, who makes you uncomfortable? Who do you find yourself uh, feeling like, human sandpaper that just grate on you? Who do you disagree with? Who do, who do you can't stand because they're wrong and they, they have wrong ideas about things and they do things wrong? 
Because there's something, it's, it's hard not to take it personally. When somebody is next to me, and I don't particularly like them, or I very much don't agree with them, and they're just running their mouths, being wrong all over the place. Why is it that I get anxious? Or why, why do you get anxious? Why do you get anxious in the presence of somebody who, who just rubs you the wrong way? When the things that they say and the things that they believe are kind of their own problem. And some people, given their attitudes and the way they view life, they're kind of their own worst punishment. Why is that so hard to let go? And I think it comes down to the fact that we as human beings, every single one of us, have this natural, unfortunate, broken need to control the things around us. Now you might say to yourself, well, not me. I am not a control freak. Freak. I don't feel the need to control anything around me. That probably means that you're the passive one and the passive ones are more controlling. Surprise! <laughs> because we as human beings have this myth that we can actually be in control. And if everything around us and everybody around us is doing everything as we know that they should, then we will be okay. And how immature is that? Now, I say this, I need you to know that I am an absolute hypocrite for bringing this up. But what Jesus seems to invite first with his disciples and then throughout the history of his church throughout the world over the last 2,000 years is that he brings together people who in some cases, and this is like prominent in the book of Acts, who have nothing in common. And he brings together people who maybe have things in common, but those points that they have in common, they only have in common because they hate each other about them. And people who just continue to rub the wrong way. Paul himself, the great apostle to the Gentiles, is depicted as getting into furious arguments. He actually gets into a public fight with Peter. But the difference is that he has established us, this family, that is not oriented around the things that we do or do not have in common. We, as the body of Christ, as the family of God, are not here because of the stories that we are telling in and amongst ourselves as friends or foes or families or old acquaintances or whatever. We are here organized around the single story of Jesus. And for some of us, that's the only thing we have in common. But that's the best thing we have in common. 
And so what Jesus starts is almost this like crazy, uh, crazy experiment where he gets people who would have, I, honestly, it would not have been safe to have them in the same room. What started with this experiment turns into this movement that has shaped the course of human history and brings us here together today as members of this body. And if our story, collectively, revolves around this person of Jesus, it means that the things that we agree about and disagree about, the things that we get along about, and then honestly we could go to blows over it, please no fighting in the lobby, by the way, uh, the that, we, that all of that stuff is just irrelevant. Doesn't matter who you vote for, who I vote for, whatever. Because this is all about the one who lived, who gathered a really weird group of disciples, who ushered in the very presence of God, who, as it turns out, is the very presence of God. And he showed us how and what it means to live by a story by dying in our place by bringing us this forgiveness and then defeating death when he's raised from the dead and walks out of that tomb three days later that's our story that's the story that defines us and our relationship here in this room and with those of us online and those of us with whom we interact when when we say it's all about jesus we're not being cute or pious we're actually being pretty literal. Because of all the people that we have relationships with and, are, and surround us and, and, and we are surrounded by, that's our divining story. Jesus. The one who gathers the wrong sorts of people. The one who brings together just a weird motley group. The one who has made his presence in and among us. And the one who has spread us out across the world to be his people. Amen. As you are able, I invite you to rise.